Well, g'day and welcome everybody. Welcome back to another week of our January series, and this is week five. How good. Uh, five weeks, hearing five different voices, and just really going back deep into the beginning of Mark, because last year we went through uh, Mark all the way up to over halfway, and uh, we were able to actually go deep into the lessons and the stories, and we're just coming back to some of the start before we finish it off uh, up in the point of this year. And so we've gone back to the start, and we've got some different voices, and their insights and what they get particularly out of the, the stories has been fantastic. And so this week I have with me Mr. Miller, Lachlan Miller. Hello. And uh, he is a great friend of mine. He is a part of uh, just life in general, but he's just finished his Masters of Theology, not that quite. Makes him it's a Masters of Divinity, uh, actually. Divinity, much sorry, more pretentious. right. Yeah, yeah, well, it's much more better to be divine than <laughs> theological. So, you know, he has got a Masters of Divinity now, which is an impressive feat for a, a young fella. And uh, he's actually looking for a position in a, in a church and he's going into ministry because he feels that call on his life. And that's mm. super exciting to be a part of the journey, to support each other and uh, to be able to get to have this conversation with him this morning. Uh, but why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself first before we get stuck into the Word this morning? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I feel like you stole like my opening line, which is, hey, I'm Lachlan, and I have just recently finished Bible college, which has been really exciting. It's been a really excellent three years, diving deep into the Bible and God's Word and just understanding it at a deeper level. And I hopefully that has really equipped me to now go into a lifetime of serving God in ministry, which I'm really excited for. That's awesome. And maybe just tell us quickly, what is the, one of the biggest aspects you've gotten out of this past three years of intentional pursuit into the Bible? Yeah, um, probably two things, actually. The first is just the depth of God's Word and how it can apply to our lives even today. And so I always believed in God's Word being strong and powerful, but I just think I understand that at a deeper level today. The other thing I think I really have come to love and appreciate through my time at college is how important unity is within the church. I went to a college where lots and lots of different denominations go to, and I got to engage with lots of people from lots of different theological backgrounds. And that's really affirmed to me that we all hold to the one gospel. And I love that one gospel that we're all united around. And I think that's super important and a big learning moment from college. That's awesome. They're so really uh, uh, incredible insights and mm. just learnings and and uh, look, we learned some great stuff in college. We've both done theology degrees. Yep. Uh, you learn some incredible things, but you're right. They are incredible lessons to mm. actually go through and come out the other side with. Uh, but this morning, this morning you've actually picked out Mark 3. Mm. And it's, uh, what is it, 22 yep. through to 30, yeah. I believe, which is, it's a fascinating passage and it's an awesome passage. And uh, I remember actually preaching on it myself back when we did it at the start of last year. Solid. Uh, and you made an, a comment, which I also made at the same time. It's one of the few stories that's mentioned across the Synoptic Gospels. Mm. Now, what the Synoptic Gospels are is it's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're the ones that really just account and recount Jesus' life, ministry, teaching, his words, his ways, and his works. Mm. Uh, and so it's really fascinating that we come back, and I'm stoked we are, to this passage because when it's written in different Gospels, it affirms the importance of the lesson, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, and so it's awesome to kick off into it. But first, let's pray together, and then let's read the Word together. Lord God, we just thank you for this time and moment. We pray as we listen that we actually hear. We pray as we stop ourselves that the stillness of your Spirit settles on us. 
and we just pray as this moment unfolds, we may be able to grow into something greater. Lord God, we thank you for everything that you are and everything that happens. And we pray that this moment might be powerful and mighty in our life. Thank you, Lord God. Amen. 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 So we're going through, and it's Mark 3, mm. chapter, Mark 3, chapter, <laughs> chapter 3, 3 yeah. chapter 3, verse 22. Get the words out. That's well done. And it goes like this. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. And Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. And similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. So let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter this house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he's possessed by an evil spirit. Incredible. I love mm. it. It's a great passage. Good passage. But tell me, uh, what is it that actually stands out for you in this passage? What is it that made you choose this passage to talk about this morning? Yeah, uh, I think there's two reasons I want to choose this passage. Uh, the first is the parable of the strong man in it. And I thought that was mildly amusing because I'm sitting here with Caleb who likes to think of himself as a strong man. No, no, that's Chris. <laughs> He's strong. I, I just, the look. <laughs> yeah, okay. All appearances. Uh, but the second reason is it's got this really interesting line about this unforgivable sin at the end. And I know when I first read it a few years ago, I was like, have I committed this unforgivable sin? How do I avoid this unforgivable sin? And so I really love spending time in this passage to understand what um, is actually a really, really hard passage. Uh, one of the really early church fathers, a guy named Augustine, who we owe a lot to as Christians who lived in the third century, he called this passage one of the most difficult passages in the entirety of Scripture. And so it's no easy thing to unpack it. I think that's an awesome response because... You know, we read something like this, and if we're taking it seriously, mm. we need to be convicted. Like, if you're reading that and you're seeing that this is something for all of eternity will be held against you, mm. we need to make sure we avoid this. Yeah. And I love it. But this whole passage, it's actually built around a whole heap of context, isn't it? Mm. So tell us a bit about some of this context and actually what's going on here. Yeah, so when we come to the very beginning of this passage that we've read, we find that the religious leaders are making some claims about Jesus. Uh, specifically, they're saying that he's able to cast out demons by the power of Satan himself. Now, we know that this is something Jesus is doing, he's casting out demons, because we find this just a little bit earlier. In fact, we go earlier in chapter 3, and what we see there is Jesus freeing a whole bunch of people from demon possession. However, when those demons come out of these people, Jesus then orders them not to tell anyone who he is, which I've always thought is a really interesting thing because these demons come out of these individuals and their first response is to praise Jesus as the Son of God. And then Jesus tells them to be quiet. And I've often wondered why this is the case. Like Jesus is performing these giant signs and then doesn't want anyone to know who he is 
by doing these signs. And I've thought about this for a while, and I think one of the reasons Jesus asked these demons not to declare who he is is because they're an unreliable source. And so Jesus gets these demons out of people. They say he's the son of God. And I don't know about you, but if a demon appeared before me, I'm probably not going to believe what they say, even if they're telling the truth. And so it makes sense that the, when these scribes rock up, they've heard stories about Jesus casting out demons and go, this, this isn't legit, this can't be good. And the demons themselves are saying that they're being cast out because Jesus is the son of God. And they instantly doubt that response, which makes sense. It also shows us that casting out demons in this context, in this context of Mark 3, in the world of Jesus, is a totally normal thing. As we read through the gospel, we find other people who are casting out demons. Uh, Mark, in chapter 9, I think it is, records uh, these people who are casting out demons using the name of Jesus, but they aren't actually followers of Jesus either. We also find other people in Acts casting out demons, and so we see that this is a really normal thing. But the thing that isn't normal is that Jesus has a 100% success rate. Every time he tries, those demons are out of there. So his power and authority is coming from somewhere that is much greater than anyone else who's trying to perform this great feat, this amazing feat. And on that thought, let me ask you this question. Mm. How much do you think is a, a westernised understanding of spirituality too? Because if we go across, and, and we mentioned it a couple of times actually, because there's been another other couple of people looked at mm. uh, casting out demons in this, this January series, but you go to poverty worlds and you go to those areas with witchcraft and mm. that sort of stuff that's heavily involved, it's something that actually is prominent still. And so what do you think about actually uh, the desensitivity to it maybe and, yeah. and, and what it actually looks like in this context? Because as you're saying, it's not, it's not uncommon there. Mm. It's real. And so what do, what do you think about our time and day with that? Yeah, I think the first thing you have to take as reality as we read scripture is that there is a spiritual realm. I think it's just undeniable. Now, in the first century, uh, the way that that spiritual battle played out was in a really real, physical, manifested way. I think the reason we don't see it as often in our scientific culture is that for us, a spiritual experience, rather than scaring us away from God, would actually affirm to us that there is a real spiritual reality. And so I've often looked at our culture and gone, the reason I don't think it is as obvious, I think it's still real, very real, but not as obvious, is because in our day and age, subtlety is a much more powerful weapon of the enemy than a direct, obvious display of the enemy's power. Even though we hear stories of overseas countries, especially third world countries, where that physical manifestation of the demonic is a much more powerful tool to scare people away from faith in Jesus. Yeah, and it's almost like this, that world is really controlled by fear too, mm. isn't it? You know, if we think about it and start to get to some of the core of it, mm. and actually the fear is a tool of the enemy, as yeah. you're saying. That's a great insight and observation. But I did interrupt. You're going somewhere with your context. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's fine. Why don't I let you continue with some of that? Because I'm, I'm engrossed by it. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, so after, if we continue reading Mark 3, we see that Jesus has done all these miracles, done all these signs. He then calls his disciples to him. He chooses the 12, and then he returns home. Except the entire crowd who's just been healed follows him home. And it's into this context that a whole bunch of scribes from Jerusalem come down to find out what the fuss is. They've heard about this man performing miracles, casting out demons, and they want to see who it is and make a decision about that. That's why I think they've actually come from Jerusalem. And then I think they make a really, really good call. I think they identify something that's really true, which is that the power of Jesus comes from one of two places. You see, there's only two authorities in the spiritual realm. 
It's either God or it is Satan. And so the, spirit, the scribes, these spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, look at Jesus, and because they've already decided he can't be of God, they are left with only one choice. And so I think the choice they made is really honest and really real and makes total logical sense from their point of view, which is that if his power is not coming from God, and yet he is performing these signs, the power must be coming from somewhere, and it is Satan that they choose. Um, and I also think it's an uh, interesting challenge to us is that these religious leaders should be the people who can identify the spiritual world easiest or most obviously. And so I find it interesting that often the sins that we struggle with and the things that we get wrong are in areas that we think we're already the expert in. Paul actually says something about this in 1 Corinthians, that God will use the wisdom of the wise against them. And I think that this is a prime example. These scribes, these spiritual leaders of the Jewish people, it is in the exact area of spirituality that they get it wrong. And God has used their own wisdom against them. Yeah, that's so awesome. And you can see that across the board, can't mm. you? You know, we become, especially in our days with PhDs or, you know, amounts of years spent in an area to become a coach mm. or a mentor, as you become so expert in something you actually become more naive to the rest of the world growing around it yeah. or, or actually the different revelations of the, the field starting to grow, mm. you know, or, or the understandings that are coming. And it's such a great application for us to be able to take, isn't it? Mm. So what are some of your insights towards this, this uh, whole point of, uh, if you say, um, expertise and, uh, and particularly here where it's these religious leaders mm. that are coming out? I think it's just a real call for humility, actually. Uh, as someone who's looking to step into full-time ministry, I know I'm going to get things wrong, but I like to think in the areas that I consider myself good at, one of which happens to be uh, Bible interpretation. I, I think that is a strength of mine, but I think it forces me to come at that with humility of in the very area I think I'm great at, that is where I can most often probably be wrong. And so it's a real good call to humility of when it comes to a passage, especially a really hard one like this, to really put it before God with humility and go, I've spent some time trying to figure out this passage, but God, am I right? Is this good? Is this what you, you want your people to hear and understand from this passage? Mm, that's awesome. And, and such a good reminder for the church. Here at New Beginnings, let me say, mm. here, the church of Sydney, the church of Australia, the church globally mm. is actually we need to remember as we take steps into the community to take it into humility not this mm. point of we are better than you and you need to come to God mm. but like because how often are people deterred by that message you know like and a call to uh, righteousness is often a um, make yourself lesser and then come to church sort of thing mm. but actually going out into it with humility and saying God's grace is for you. It's not actually something that you deserve, sure, but you can still receive it, you mm. know. Uh, it's a great call to the church. Yeah, I, th I think it's a necessary one too. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. There was something else in here that stands out for me, and oh, you yeah. mentioned it at the start, and I'd just love to get your interpretation around it because, you know, biblical interpretation is your thing. Apparently. As you just <laughs> self-proclaimed. Self-proclaimed, yep. It's that whole thing about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit mm. and it being the eternal sin. Yeah. And it's such a huge part of um, this build-up, I guess, of Jesus' teaching, right? Mm. And it gets to this pinnacle of, you can do this against, uh, you can blaspheme, I think it says, people... The Son of God. And, and, and it will be forgiven. But if you do this to the Holy Spirit, mm. 
far out, you're in a world of trouble, hey? Yeah. Like, what does that mean? And, and what do you understand that as? Yeah. Well, actually, before we get to that point, yeah. I'd like to take a step back because Jesus has just been accused of being possessed by Satan himself, effectively. And so Jesus actually gives three responses to this. Uh, the first response we see in 23 to 26, and he just tells a story about how a kingdom that is divided by civil war falls apart. Uh, my favourite example of this is I'm a bit of a Star Wars fan. And so in episode 4, 5, 6, there is the Galactic Civil War and you have the Rebels versus the Empire. They used to be one thing, right? But then there's a civil war and they're against each other, ultimately causing both to crumble. Both, neither is powerful after they're at war against each other for so long. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying, is that if there was a civil war within Satan's kingdom, then neither side would be strong enough to be doing anything. And then Jesus says... I've just performed exorcisms. I've just got demons out of people. So the, the kingdom of Satan is still strong. It's still powerful. If it is still strong and powerful, there can't be a civil war happening between some of Satan's servants and the other side of Satan's servants. In fact, it has to be a different power who is at war with them. Therefore, my power has to come from God, which we've already seen is the only logical place it can come from. And so that's like the first response Jesus gives. Then he jumps into a parable about the strong man. And the reason I really love this parable is I used to run Bible studies for uni students and I used to get them to get a piece of paper and draw this parable. And it surprised me how often they got the drawing wrong. Now, if you're at home right now, pause, grab a piece of paper and a pen and I want you to draw out what you think this parable looks like. You need a house, which is, yeah, I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Draw it first. Draw a house and then label what you think the house is. Then draw a strong man and label what you think that is. If you need an example of what a strong man looks like, just over here. And then, if, then I want you to draw a picture of a robber and label what the robber is. These are the three main characters in this story. Now, so, so often I would get uni students to draw this picture of the parable and they would make Jesus the strong man. Because when we hear the word strong man, we think strength, we think power, we think can't be beaten by anything. And authority almost authority, as well, right? Yes. Like uh, ability to have dominion. Yeah. yeah. But instead, what Jesus says is that it is Satan who is the strong man. Jesus is saying that Satan is strong and powerful, but Satan is the strong man in this passage. Uh, the, the house, which I don't know what you labelled it, but what I think it should be labelled is Satan's kingdom, which is the world we live in. That is what Jesus is saying is Satan's house. And then the robber in this situation is actually Jesus. And you see the robber beats up and ties up the strong man, so he's stronger than the strong man. And then he plunders the house, which is he takes people like us that are in this world in darkness and steals us from that world of darkness into light and saves us. And that is what the parable is saying, is that only someone stronger than the strong man, stronger than Satan, can come in and take us who are trapped by him out of that kingdom. And so that is the parable Jesus teaches. Um, I think it shows many things. Firstly, it shows that the battle around us is not a physical one. Physical people have appeared before Jesus, the scribes, and said, you are not of God, you are of Satan, but they are not the enemy. It's not Israel's leaders who are the enemy. It's not the Roman Empire in this day and age who are the enemy in the time of Jesus. It is instead this spiritual battle going on that is of the utmost importance. But what we also see in this passage, in this parable, is that Jesus does consistently beat Satan, especially post his death and resurrection, we can say that Satan has been absolutely and utterly defeated. 
And because he's been utterly defeated, yeah, there's still some mopping up operations to do. We need to uh, defeat him in a few smaller arenas, but the war is won. Jesus has beaten him. And it is after giving this context of, no, I am of God, that then Jesus launches into this section about what is this eternal, unforgivable sin. That's awesome. And please do take us away into that. (laughs) Definitely. I will definitely now dive into what is probably some of the most confusing bits. Let me just read the little bit from the passage again. Uh, Verse 28. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequence. I think firstly we need to define blaspheming, right? Uh, Blaspheming is defined hostility. Um, It is also attributing some sort of evil to God or denying some good thing he's done from him. We actually see in the Old Testament... Just say that again for me because, you know, I'm a bit slow and, you know, I know there's a couple that are like me that maybe uh, (laughs) love to hear it a couple of times because that's a great definition of blasphemy. Mm. So so say that again for us. There's three things that are blasphemy. The first is defined hostility to God. The second is attributing some sort of evil to God. And the third is not attributing some sort of good to God. Where the goodness is due, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. When it's something that he deserves to be attributed to. Um, I think we can see this in the Old Testament a lot. And so we know the people of Israel, when they built a golden calf in the desert, blasphemed God because they attributed the goodness and character of God to something that wasn't him. Uh, They attribute to a golden calf. And so this is a really serious offence. In fact, in the Old Testament, it is an offence that calls for that person to be removed from Israel, removed from God's people, if you commit blasphemy. So already, Jesus has used a word that holds a lot of power. The scribes are well aware of Old Testament. They're well aware of the punishment of blaspheming. And so Jesus has drawn this word in for a very specific reason, to be like, this is a serious thing. But because it's so serious and because we suddenly hear that there's something, an eternal sin, I think we miss something very, very important, which is that all sins can be forgiven. All blasphemies against people, all blasphemies against the Son of God, Jesus himself, all of that can be forgiven. What we see here is Jesus is saying everyone can be forgiven for their sins. And I think that's an important framework to understand when we come to this eternal sin, to this unforgivable sin, is that Jesus has just said that all sins and blasphemies can be forgiven. So there needs to be that mindset as we actually go into what is the eternal sin. Now, I know what I think this unforgivable sin is, but I figured I would double check with a few smart people and see what they had to say. Oh, you don't need to flatter me. (laughs) And I found that uh, throughout church history, there's kind of been three viewpoints of what this unforgivable sin is. The first is just directly insulting the Holy Spirit. So if someone said a rude word to the Holy Spirit, that could be, in some people's views, this unforgivable sin. This is blasphemy. The second one is persisting in sin. Despite the call of the Holy Spirit, despite the witness of the Holy Spirit, still sinning continuously. And the third is, um, there was this viewpoint in medieval Christianity that the Holy Spirit represented the characteristics of charity and goodness. And so if you did these charity and goodness for the wrong reason then that was the unforgivable sin. Um, I think we're just going to dismiss that third viewpoint, if that's okay. Uh, Interesting one to look into, but we're just going to dismiss it. And I'm actually going to say that the second option, persisting in sin continuously, is what we mean by this eternal unforgivable sin. Now, this leads to the question of, can we actually perform this sin today? I think is a question we need to very quickly jump on top of. And I think yes. I think 
so often the Holy Spirit convicts people of the truth of the gospel, convicts them that there is a God, convicts them that this God is worth investigating and discovering and learning about and loving, and they reject that. When they reject the Holy Spirit's continual influence in their lives, that is that unforgivable sin. And so the question is, do people commit it today? Yes. But then the question is, do Christians commit it today? And I think no. If at any point in your life you have said, no, I'm going to listen to that Holy Spirit prompting. I'm going to listen to the moment the Holy Spirit says, like, go to church or read your Bible or think about this man, Jesus. And even some stories I've heard recently, Mm. when he gives you signs Mm. and you start to recognise them as the Holy Spirit in your life. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to point out that this unforgivable sin is not one action. It's not a, I've committed the single sin, I'm stuffed, all eternity, I can't be forgiven. This unforgivable sin is dying, having never responded to the Holy Spirit's prompting in your life to investigate God, to commit your life to Jesus. That is what the Holy Spirit is prompting in everyone. A lot of people, most people even, will reject that prompting of the Holy Spirit. But he is active in this world and prompting everyone to learn more and discover God. And it is that continual ignoring of that claim that Jesus is warning against. And so he's not saying that the scribes here have committed this sin. He's just suggesting that they're getting close. They're ignoring the Holy Spirit's promptings that Jesus is of God, that his power and his kingdom are of God. They're currently rejecting that claim. Now, hopefully, I pray that some of them realised before the end that Jesus was of God and therefore committed their lives to him and therefore were not guilty of this unforgivable sin. That's awesome. And so um, I have a couple of thoughts as we come into this closure part, if we would. And I want to start with just touching on this aspect first too. Let me ask you, uh, to become aware though, I think Mm. some people have become maybe so ingrained in just the routine of Christian life, Mm. or they may not have even been taught what it means to actually listen for the Holy Spirit or to be able to recognise Him. Um, And and sometimes it's just because we're scared and don't really look to push ourselves to recognise the Holy Spirit. How would you firstly um, encourage people to start in that path Mm. so that they can start to do that? And ultimately then they start to avoid what this whole thing here of the unforgivable sin is uh, and actually live in that life that is healthy and what God desires for us, how do you firstly um, start that journey? Yeah, the book of Mark is an interesting book and it's interesting because the words Holy Spirit barely appear in it. Um, I'm sure if you've come to New Beginnings for a while, you've heard a lot about the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt about that. The Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. It is God. He is God. Let's, Let's give him a pronoun. He is God. And so we can't ignore him. And sometimes when you read through Mark, it can be easy to not see him active and at work. But I think this passage is so clear that the Holy Spirit is active and important and an important part of Jesus' ministry. But then what I love about the Bible is we never read it in isolation. We always read it in context. And as we continue reading the Bible, that Holy Spirit presence becomes so much more obvious as we dive into Acts, as we dive into the epistles, we see the Holy Spirit coming through in a powerful way. And so I just want to affirm that To live a life as a Christian is to live a life of listening to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes that's really hard. Sometimes he will prompt us about things that we want to keep doing, but we know and he knows is wrong. Uh, Sometimes he wants to start something that is really hard or painful. But as Christians, one of our biggest cause is to listen to the voice of God. The Holy Spirit is God's representative with us in our very being. 
And that's an amazing thing that God has given us, an amazing reality and truth of living our lives as Christians. And so we just can't ignore that. We need to press into the Holy Spirit because ultimately that will make us more like Jesus and we'll have zero risk whatsoever of committing this unforgivable sin. Because every moment that you listen and you hear something from God, whether that is from reading his word or listening to his people or worshipping him, whenever you hear that Holy Spirit prompting within you and you say yes, then you have not and will not ever commit this unforgivable sin. That's awesome. And I uh, just want to affirm that if you're someone that's looking to actually find that space and and to actually engage, and and maybe it's, look, I, I hear that you say you can't read the Bible in isolation, but I don't know how to do that. Reach out to one of us, uh, one of the leaders in the church or one of the people you actually have a personal connection with in the church and ask them to start reading the Bible with you at the start of this year because that's one of the main ways in which you're going to learn how to engage with the Spirit, how to actually become into a routine of growth and um, awareness. So please reach out and actually be deliberate in taking that step. Don't let that opportunity pass if you feel a prompting right now. The other thing I wanted to ask you, Mr. Miller, as we, uh, as we wrap up, and this is probably our final thought, mm. before you started to go down that path, you said something that was really lovely, and it was um, that all sins are forgivable. Mm. And I'd love to end on that thought, actually, mm. because we don't want to end on the point of we have to avoid this. That's mm. not the point, because then we start to live in fear of God, yeah. and we actually start to live in... Um, almost a a legalistic approach Mm. to the Bible and and the relationship we have. And that's not the point. Mm. We we actually want to affirm that the point is to live in the freedom and in the relationship with God. And so if we just bring it back to that as our final thought, would you just give us a few words about that and maybe just some practical engagements or, or something around that? Yeah. So like I said, Jesus frames this discussion of the unforgivable sin with the claim that all sins will be forgiven the sons of God. Like us as children of God will have all sins forgiven. There's a few other Bible verses. And again, this is why we read the scriptures in context. Uh, For example, Acts 16.31 says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Um, John 6.40 says, this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise them up on the last day. You see, Jesus promises that if we go to him, all our sins are forgiven. There is no exception to these two verses. There's no clause that says otherwise. Any time you call on the name of Jesus to be saved and ask him for forgiveness of your sins, that is done. Those sins are permanently forgotten. You don't have to sit there as a Christian and ever, ever worry about an unforgivable sin. That's what I want you to take away from this passage, is that as a Christian, you will not and cannot ever perform this unforgivable sin. It's interesting to think about. It's interesting to be concerned about for your friends and family who don't know Jesus, but it is not a reality for you at any point. And so I want to really affirm you that go to Jesus with your sins. Uh, Go to God and say, I've stuffed up. That can sometimes be hard and painful, but he will always offer you forgiveness. And that sin is wiped clean forever in his mind. And so that is hopefully something really practical of bring them before God, they are totally gone. And then hopefully have a real heart for those who are currently rejecting the promptings of the Spirit, because that is what we want people to avoid. And that too can be forgiven. It's only when they reach the end of their lives and they still haven't responded to those promptings. That is when it's unforgivable. But every moment until then, Jesus will offer total and utter forgiveness in every way. 
That's so good. And uh, on that note, why don't we just end in a prayer, actually? Uh, well, can I ask you to pray for Absolutely. us and, and just really give that time so we can, if we're feeling in this moment, we need to ask for forgiveness for something. Take this time and opportunity and uh, let's pray together as we close. Let's do it. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you for the way it speaks to us, both in the first century, but also today into this 21st century context. I want to bring before you all the sins that I've committed and I want to just bring, allow some space as others uh, who are listening to this and praying along with me bring some of their sins before you. Lord Jesus, I now want to thank you so, so much that you have wiped those sins from the record, that because of your love for me and your sacrifice on the cross, that those sins are totally and utterly forgotten. Uh, and I too can forget them and move on knowing that uh, in your eyes I am clean and pure, that I look like you uh, because of your work. Thank you so much for that. I now want to ask you to give me a real heart for those around me who do not yet know you. Uh, again, those who are praying along with me, I'd like to take some time. Think about those in your life right now who are currently rejecting the promptings of the Spirit in their life. I want to thank you for these people that I love, for these people that I want to see come to know you. And I want to feel a real urgency and a real desire to see them come to love you too and respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So I pray as I go out today that you, Lord, would give me an opportunity. Um, and if one isn't presented to me, help me create an opportunity, one where I can help someone see you and respond to the Holy Spirit that is already trying to knock at, their, knock at the door of their hearts. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mr. Miller. That's fantastic. What a great time. And uh, if you prayed that prayer with Lachlan, can I just encourage you to actually uh, reach out because we as a church want to support you too. Uh, and we want to be able to put our hands out and help encourage or engage you in that to maybe equip you to be able to reach those people that um, you may have had on your mind or heart. So please reach out. And uh, we look forward to seeing you soon. And we're coming back close to meeting together again. So until then, we'll catch you later.